This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you happen to be a first-time listener here at 88.7 as we broadcast locally in Hilton Head, Savannah, Beaufort, and this surrounding area, uh, we also broadcast through the Internet at wagp.net so people can hear us anywhere in the world if you have friends who don't have access to good sound Christian radio. Uh, But if you have a question, that's what we answer, God willing, for the next hour. Maybe it's a particular passage of Scripture that has challenged you or you're looking for a biblical application uh, to a particular passage or understanding. So if we can be of help, all you need to do, you can pick up the phone locally. The South Carolina 843 Exchange is 525-1859. You can call us uh, toll-free at 877-WAGP. The call letters WAGP 980, the 877 Exchange. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL. That stands for The Bible Line at WAGP.net. So any of those will work, and if we can be of help, we will do our very, very best. And uh, we do try and get to these questions as quickly as possible, but uh, because there are so many, sometimes we do get backed up. As a matter of fact, this one is uh, from uh, several weeks ago. Paul from Bluffton writes, uh, Pastor Brogy, I just want to say thank you for your message of Sunday, July 31st. I found it most illuminating and uplifting, particularly your criteria for heavenly rewards. I never considered the aspect of what one attempts to do for the kingdom as being a basis for potential reward in God's eyes, but I see more clearly now about uh, the attempt as it relates to the intent of the heart. There are times in my outside ministry work where I have days that seem to be as unproductive, but I'm looking at it from my own perspective and should be looking at it from a kingdom perspective. Anyway, my question pertains to Mark 8, 22 to 24, in particular, the response from the blind man stating, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Is this reference of trees in any way referring to Psalm 1, verse 3? Are the tree references alluding to a particular message? Does it have to do with bearing fruit? Thank you for your consideration and your dedication to illuminating God's word. Well, it's a good question. Uh, Context is everything, and so when you step into Mark chapter 8, you discover that he feeds the 4,000, not to be confused with the feeding of the 5,000, a distinctly different event in two different places. And so after he feeds the 5,000, he heads back across the sea, and he comes to the district, it says here in verse 10, of Dalmanutha, Uh, In the parallel passage, it says Magdalon or Magdala. You could translate it either way. Some of you have been with me to Israel, and we go to the town of Magdala. In fact, we stay in a hotel that's built over a great archaeological site. Most of us know Magdala for the place that Mary of Magdala was from. 
And so these disciples, these Pharisees come out and they argue with him, seeking for a sign from heaven to test him. And of course, uh, Jesus accuses them basically of unbelief. And so verse 13 of that chapter says, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. So now he's going back across the sea. And the text says, and they, the disciples, had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Um, he says, having eyes that do not see and having ears that do not hear, quoting Isaiah, and do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? And those were, again, just heads of household, so maybe 20,000 he fed. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said seven. And it's kind of interesting because the word for baskets in both cases is different. When he fed the 5,000, if you remember, they had 12 baskets. And the word for basket refers to the kind of basket you'd sling over your shoulder and you could put you know, some groceries in. Uh, the baskets, when they fed the 4,000, would be like a large laundry basket. The same kind of word is used to describe when the Apostle Paul is stuck in a basket and set over the side of a wall when he tries to escape. And of course, he does. So the pictures here are very vivid. And so he asks this penetrating question, do you not yet understand? So this is the context. He's dealing first with the unbelief of the Pharisees who want to see a miracle, then he's dealing with the unbelief of his own disciples. They're, oh, you know, we didn't bring any bread. Well, the Lord has already bailed them out twice and fed them miraculously. And so they came to Bethsaida. They're on the other side. There's two Bethsaidas, which doesn't totally surprise us. There's two Caesareas. There's two Bethlehems. There's two a lot. And so geography is important. And they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch them. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. So he carries him out of the village. Um, Later, this town is called out of the city because it is later given a city status. So the timing of when a gospel is written is very, very important. They're not contradictory. They're just reflecting the time frame in which they were written. Again, these are so-called errors that the critics find in the Bible. Why does he take him out of the village? Because of the unbelief of the people of Bethsaida. If you remember, there was an evangelical triangle, uh, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, which Jesus said, woe to you, because if the miracles that had been done in Sodom that were done in you, they would have repented. And so it's not that he doesn't care, but God can allow us to come to a point where he begins to withhold revelation because of our spurning it. And so taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was reasoning and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So he doesn't want them to go back. He doesn't want them to go back to this village that he just came from. Uh, some revelation is being withheld at this point. 
but he wants him to go back to his own home village and he wants him to share the good news. And so really it's a picture. We can talk a lot, but our time is limited here on the Bible line and we've got questions just stacked up that have come in as to the means that Jesus healed him and he can just speak a miracle geographically, not even be there and it's done like when he healed the a sick daughter of the synagogue official, or he can use uh, different methods to heal blind people. And there are seven blind people that are illustrated, and they're all a little bit different. In either case, um, this man, when he looks, he sees not clearly. And then when he looks further, he sees very clearly. And it's an illustration contextually of where his own men are. Do you not understand, he asks that penetrating question. I fed 5,000. I fed 4,000. You're worried over. We forgot the bread. And so they see, but they don't see clearly. Their faith needs to develop. And so it's an illustration to the disciples of their need to grow further in their faith. Great question. Let's go to the next. All right. Linda just uh, called and dictated her question. She'd like to know what language was spoken by Adam and Eve in the garden? Well, my Jewish friends would say Hebrew, um, but we don't know definitively. Uh, languages uh, evolve with various races, and I say evolve not in the sense that people use the term evolution. But, you know, we know the languages started uh, as we know them in, at the Tower of Babel, and God confused the languages. And so what was the unified language that man spoke? Probably Hebrew, but we will have to wait to see when we get to heaven. Uh, God certainly spoke in Hebrew through his scriptures, and so the voice of God is heard in Hebrew. Uh, What language God will have us speak in heaven, again, we'll have to wait and see. But there was confusion that came at the Tower of Babel, and then a multiplicity of languages started. And then You can look at languages today, and sometimes as geography separates them, the language takes on a different twist or torque. Um, Take uh, New York English and Philadelphia English and South Carolina English. There's idioms and expressions that are used in those three geographical areas that are slightly different. Take uh, Ukrainian versus Russian. Take... uh, Eastern Ukrainian, that Russian, take Russia, Russia, Moscow Ukrainian, take Kiev Ukrainian, take Russian, Russian in Moscow, and they're all a little bit different, but there's great similarities uh, between the languages, and so they uh, take on a life of their own. So nobody knows, nobody can be dogmatic um, on that because it's not something that God has revealed. And that's a good principle. Deuteronomy 32, 32 says, the sacred things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that he has revealed belong to us and our children. So since God hasn't revealed what language Adam and Eve spoke, we can't say, but what's written is they spoke in Hebrew. And that may possibly very well be the language that God had Adam and Eve use. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859 if you have a question for today's Bible line. And uh, just as we were signing off last week, uh, we got a caller but didn't have a time to answer the question. Uh, They dictated it. With the ordination of the King of England was to be 
brought the coronation stone from Scotland known as Jacob's Pillow. Is that the stone from the Bible in Genesis? Well, the, um, the English claimed it was that when Jacob, out of exhaustion, sat down and, you know, most of us like to have our head propped. I guess maybe that's the way God made us. And he wanted his head propped, so he, he found a, a rock and propped up his head. And, of course, the kings and queens of England said that they actually possessed that stone and that that was the very stone that Jacob laid his head on under the auspices of Queen Elizabeth. Early in her reign, she, quote-unquote, returned that stone. So I have not seen, I don't think they've officially coronated, uh, they haven't coronated him yet, uh, officially as king, that's uh, awaiting uh, but they won't have the stone that they used for centuries because the Queen of England returned it. Now, how the Jews understand that stone, I don't know. Um, but uh, that's how the English understood it, that this was the very stone that he laid his head on. And so for centuries, when a king or queen was uh, brought into rule, they would take that stone and they would lay the crown on top of it. Interesting question. Good one. Let's go to the next. Anna from Beaufort writes, my four-year-old son has been asking questions about heaven and has been mainly afraid of going there and wants to know what we would look like. What Bible verses can I read to him to help him understand more about how heaven will be and that he does not need to be afraid of going there? You know, children ask great questions, and we never want to um, just brush them off because this is a very formative time in their life, and when you start teaching and training your children very early on in Scripture, you have the opportunity to really hide God's Word in their hearts and plant that seed that will bring them not only to salvation but to maturation as, uh, as they're under your roof. So when you talk about heaven, you want to describe it as a very, very real place. It's mentioned several hundred times in the New Testament alone. And, of course, um, I just preached a funeral uh, last Thursday, and... I reminded the people from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that there are three heavens that the Bible mentions. There's the first heaven that you see by day, and so the psalmist talks about the birds of the air that are in that first heaven that are flying around. Sometimes it's referred to in Scripture as the sky or the firmament. Then there's the second heaven that we see by night, and so my wife has been teaching uh, the Psalms on Wednesdays. And by the way, if you haven't been to Woman's Life, the last one for this calendar year, and they'll open up again in February, is tomorrow, and it's a tremendous women's ministry that's based on Titus 2. But I think she's in, or she just taught Psalm 8, and it says, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. And so that's the heavens that we see by night. And then there's the third heaven that we don't see by day or by night, but we see by faith. And that is described in Psalm 33 and other places as the dwelling place of God. And Paul describes that experience that he has where he's caught up into the third heaven. And it is so magnificent what he sees. God gives him some kind of physical ailment, a thorn in the flesh as it's called. We're not told in that passage what it is. I suspect it might have been in light of the chronology of the New Testament books, uh, a problem that Paul developed on the first missionary journey, malaria that gave him eye troubles and 
Uh, he dealt with it the rest of his life, but it was a constant reminder never to brag or to boast or even to share the specifics of what he saw. Uh, so it's magnificent. It's breathless. And so uh, we just lost our oldest member. She was 100 years old. And I said, I don't weep today for Miss Mary because she's in heaven. Uh, we don't feel sorry for her. We may feel sorry for ourselves and the grief that we experience because she's not here, but we don't feel sorry for her. So when you look at heaven, you should teach your, maybe get your child to draw a picture of the three heavens. You know, children love to create things, and that would implant the truth. So maybe he could draw a picture of the first heaven where they see the uh, birds flying and in the sky, and then the second heaven where he could create the stars and the moon and and then the third heaven, maybe he could draw a throne, you know, where, where, where God is. But among other things, it's a prepared place. Jesus said, I go and I prepare a place for you. So you can teach your child from, you know, John fourteen two that the place that we will go to, God has specially prepared. In fact, he said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Now, the old King James says many mansions. But the word mansion in the 17th century in 1611, when the Bible was translated, meant a room. With time, the word changed its meaning. So the King James uh, used the word from the Latin Vulgate, and they rendered it accordingly. And in Latin Vulgate, it meant a room as well. But today, you know, people say, well, you know, I, I, God's got this big mansion for me in heaven. No, it's a house. It's a home. And there are many rooms in it. So it's a warm place. It's an inviting place. It's a prepared place that God has made for us. And it, it's, it's a very welcoming place. You know, the Bible teaches that in the parable that Jesus taught, in every parable that he teaches, there's no error. There's no untruth to teach truth. Jesus always uses truth to teach truth. And so when Lazarus, the poor man, dies, He's carried to heaven by angels. And so, you know, when you go into a strange place for the first time, it's nice when uh, someone comes and gets you and they welcome you and they carry you in and uh, there's a sense of warmth in all of that. It's an exclusive place. Not everybody gets to go to heaven. Uh, Jesus said, no one can come to the Father and he's in heaven but by me. And so it's a place that God wants people to go, but not everyone will go. God wishes that none should perish, Second Peter 3, 9, but all should come to repentance. First uh, Timothy 2, he says, God desires all men to be saved. So if someone doesn't go to heaven, this exclusive place for believers only, it's their own fault. It's certainly a magnificent place. It's a beautiful place. And so God likens it in the Revelation to the Garden of Eden. Uh, Eden restored, so to speak. There's a river of life that flows through it. There's the tree of life that we'll eat from. Um, and again, it, it's magnificent. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's described by John as a place of no more. There's no more tears. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrows. He just runs out of words to describe the magnificence of heaven. And so he describes it sometimes in terms of what it is not. But most of all, heaven is the place where God is. In 1 John 3, Jesus said, we're children of God. It's not appeared as if yet what we will be, but when we see him, we'll be like him. And so we're going to see the Lord God in heaven. 
and we're going to be there with him. Now, it might be that the genesis of your child's fear is that there's an uncertainty about whether or not they would go to heaven. And so, one, I would give some assurance to your little son. You know, if you died right now, you may not understand all this, son, but the Bible is very clear that you would go to heaven. And Jesus taught that in passages like Matthew 18, where he likens the kingdom of God, or David, 2 Samuel 12. I, I, I can't come, he can't come to me, but I'll go to him someday, because he knew he was with the Lord, that little baby. But son, there comes a time when God wants you to make a decision about Jesus. And if you will decide for Jesus, you can be assured that you'll go to heaven. And so this would be an opportunity to share the gospel. I have no doubt in my mind that my son Jordan met Christ at the age of four, that he was truly converted at the age of four. And his brother, Jeremy, who was just, you know, a couple years older than him, probably led him to Christ. Um, In either case, uh, there's no doubt that sometimes children at a young, tender age can receive Christ. And so it might be that your son is a little bit frightened because he's not sure. But again, describe the beauty, the magnificent, you know, son, do you like being in this home? Do you feel welcome? Do you like the room you have in our house? Yeah, it's a great place. Well, God has a a home absent from the body. We're home with the Lord. And and this home has a room in it that's prepared for, for you and for me. And, and it's going to be a very warm, welcoming place. And by the way, friends, that's just the capital city. Because someday that new Jerusalem is literally going to come down and settle through a brand new universe. Because this universe is broken and stained by sin and fallen. And, and this earth has fallen. And God's going to burn it. And he's going to create a brand new earth. By the way, we are in a series right now called God's Prophetic Schedule. And in the schedule, we'll, I'm sure, give a message on heaven. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Ginger just called in and dictated her question. She says, based off of Colossians 1.15, if Christ is the image of the invisible God, will God look like the Jesus who will be sitting at his right hand? Well, uh, it's a it's a good question. Uh, he is the image, and it's the Greek word icon. Um, and so we speak of icons sometimes where, you know, different faiths, especially in Roman Catholicism and the Orthodox faith, they make physical representations of different biblical characters or sometimes of, you know, Jesus or the Virgin Mary or all these different pictures, and they're very important to them. And sadly, in many of these things, they are used as tools to elicit faith and tools of worship, and that's dangerous, and it's really against the Decalogue, and it's uh, contrary to how God gives faith. He doesn't give faith through statues and pictures faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. God is spirit. And there was a time when Jesus as a member of the triune God was spirit only. He was not incarnated. There was never a time when the son did not exist. And so what we celebrate at Christmas is the incarnation is the spirit of God. The second, third member of the Trinity overshadowed Mary's womb and took his eternal deity and brought together perfect sinless humanity. And so, um, God, uh, I relate to my heavenly father right now. He's very real to me. I relate to the Holy spirit within me who bears witness to my spirit that I am a child of God. Do I see them with my physical eyes? No. Are they real? They're as real as the chair I'm sitting on this morning. So I don't need to 
physically see with my eyes. So there are what we call theophanies in Scripture, where God gives a physical manifestation of his invisible nature. Uh, But you will literally, with your eyes, see the Lord Jesus. I just quoted from 1 John 3 with our last caller. Uh, Just as um, uh, Thomas was invited to touch his hands and his side, Uh, his body is real, it's physical. And throughout all of eternity, we will see him manifested in that physical body. Yet while his body is localized, he is still the omniscient, omnipresent God. He is everywhere. Even when we worship on Sunday morning in a special, unique way where two or three or more are present in worship in his name, he's right there in our midst. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, A.V. from Bluffton asks, does the Bible say anything about cremation? Well, it does, and this question comes up from time to time. Um, There are patterns in Scripture, and then there are exceptions in Scripture, and sometimes people draw a doctrine from an exception rather than the pattern. Uh, There are some exceptions in the Bible where the body is burned. Um, If you remember when Achan rebelled against God and took away the blessing on the whole nation. God had him and his family and all that was associated with him burned. Uh, They did not have the normal burial that Jewish people practice, and it was a symbol of judgment, and fire and burning is a symbol of judgment all the way through Scripture. Uh, If you remember, Saul and his uh, three sons uh, were... um, in that city where they were defeated and their bodies were hung against the wall and they were left there to as mutilated and, you know, for the birds and other things to come on them. And so when the Israelis came to uh, take their bodies off the wall, uh, they, they burned the flesh off. Obviously what had happened was their bodies were so mangled and mutilated and probably made sport of that it was virtually impossible to carry them. And so what did they do? They burned the flesh off, but they took the bones and they would have put them in an ossuary and they brought the bones to Israel and they buried him in the appropriate place as recorded in scripture. Uh, In fact, you remember when Joseph died, he made a, he made the sons of Israel promise, look, this place that you're going to be in, uh, because you'll be here for 400 years until the fullness of the Amorites have come in. So the pl- the timing was dictated by God. He was giving the Amorites every opportunity to repent. But when you ultimately leave here, because God had prophesied to Abraham they would be there 400 years, uh, I want you to bury my bones in the land of promise. Why? Because he recognized that God had given a land, a seed, or a blessing to the nation of Israel as he promised it to Abraham. And so what did that look like? Well, when a Jew died, You would place their body in a tomb, and eventually, after a period of time, after the flesh had disintegrated, you would take the bones that were left on that stone or in that cave, and you would put them in a box, an ossuary, and then that box would be placed in the tomb, and that's how you could have multiple burials in a single tomb. When we are on the Mount of Olives, there's a cave that we will often go to, and we look in the cave, and there's about 30 boxes of a family and some generations, no doubt, that were represented there. 
that are are buried in these little boxes. And so the big casket with the body that it's not there, it's just a, a box of bones, so to speak. But in Scripture, again, the practice was to bury. And so it was done in different ways. Sometimes it's done six feet under the ground. Sometimes it's done in a cave where the body disintegrates because that cave is going to be used for multiple family members in multiple generations. And again, they're looking at the promise of the resurrection when someday they will go up. But the picture in Scripture is burial. And so the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their wives, they're all buried. When you come into the New Testament, John the Baptist, Ananias, and Sapphira, they're buried. It's assumed in the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that God's saints are buried. And so Paul compares it to a seed that looks dead that you put in the ground, and yet life comes from a seemingly dead seed. When the dead body is planted in the ground, we are planting it in faith and in testimony that someday that body will come out of the grave. The assumption in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that the dead in Christ will rise first because they've been buried, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Now, you know, if your loved one has been cremated, it's not a problem. If someone dropped an atomic bomb on my chest this morning and I was vaporized, God would still find my body at the resurrection. So it's not a problem if your loved one died at sea and was eaten by fish. It's not a problem if they were burned in a fire or incinerated in a jet. God will find the body. But the picture in Scripture is not cremation. In fact, cremation was virtually unthinkable in the early days of America. Some would debate whether it was a Presbyterian doctor or a Unitarian, but it's about the same time 1876, a hundred years after the country is founded, the Unitarians promoted cremation, and they did so because they denied the bodily resurrection. And so is their defiant way of raising their fist in the face of Christians, basically saying, "I let's see what your God can do with this burnt-up body. And so it was reprehensible to born-again believers to... Uh, cremate a body because it was basically putting your arm around uh, unbelieving Unitarians who denied the body of the resurrection. Well, as time has progressed, the American culture has become ignorant of the scriptures and they're not following the biblical pattern. So there are some things that we do, by the way, by pattern and not by direct command. There's not a direct command that says, thou shalt bury your loved ones. But there is a pattern in Scripture. There's not a direct command that says the local church, thou shalt have deacons. But there's a pattern, there's an example, and there's an assumption in that God even gives qualifications for deacons. Now, there is a command for elders, but there's an assumption you'd have deacons as well because of what we find in the Scripture. And so some things we do by example, some things we do by direct mandate from Scripture. And so the example in Scripture is burial, and I would direct you to Deuteronomy 34. Uh, It says, and I turn there, it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. God had said, you're not going to uh, go into the land of promise, uh, but because of the sin of pride that you expressed, but he took him to the top of the mountain. He let him see with his eyes the promised land that he labored bringing the people to for 40 years. And, and then it says, and he, he who, he, the, the Lord, uh, Yahweh, 
buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. So when God himself is the funeral director over Moses' funeral, what does God do? He buries him. Let me just say practically, and I've preached over 500 funerals in my lifetime. When there's an urn there, and and look, if you come to me and say, look, we're going to cremate, will you do the funeral? I'll be there for you. If you want to have an urn and a picture, that's fine. But if you come and ask me what I think, I'm going to tell you what Scripture says and what the pattern is. And practically, when there's a body there, there's a lot more punch. And so this funeral I did on Thursday, and there was an open casket for visitation before the funeral started, and a lot of people walked up, and tears came out. And a few people wept audibly. It breaks the heart. And death is real. And oftentimes we don't think of it. Well, it's not going to happen to me, not this week, not this month, not this year. But it happens at a time when we don't always plan or expect. And so we need to be ready. And so at every funeral, every pastor should share the plan of salvation, among other things. People say, oh, but it's so expensive. You know, when I was at that graveyard on Thursday, One, I affirm the family. I can't say this when the body's cremated. But I say, hey, I just want to remind you that what you did was honorable. And and I made a statement. I don't always make it. And I I said, I'm going to make a statement, but I don't want you to misunderstand me. So listen very, very carefully. I don't want you to leave here and say, well, Pastor Carl said this. But when I was a boy growing up, you burned your trash. Everyone had a trash barrel. You didn't put it out at the street for the garbage man to come. You put it in the trash barrel and you lit it and you burned it. And that was a common responsibility a lot of kids had in the 50s and 60s. I said, we burned our trash. We buried our treasure. I'm not saying, so don't misunderstand me, that when you burned your loved one. And by the way, do you think when they give you that little urn, that that's exclusively Uncle Joe. You know, they they burn your loved ones. They go in there, sweep out. The, you think they go in there with a vacuum cleaner and suck out all the ash and so that there's not a single ash left? Um, no. In fact, there's been some horrible crimes that have been committed by some funeral directors who didn't even cremate the people, and those have come out in the last few years. But you're basically getting Uncle Joe. And so, again, it's not a problem for God. But, you know, we're never consistent when it, when it comes to, like, little children. Oh, it's unthinkable. It's absolutely unthinkable that we would cremate this four-year-old who died. We're going to bury our precious little loved one. But somehow, you know, people get old and, you know, oh, it's too expensive. You know, I meet people who are broke all the time, and they always have money for cigarettes, beers, for beer and for Braves games. But when it comes to, you know, the funeral, look, you do what's important. Well, I've got money to go on this world cruise or this vacation, but I haven't set aside enough money, and you don't have to buy a $6,000 casket. You can buy something cheap. Anyway, it's something to think about. Let's go to the next question. All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we have Steve from Springfield, Georgia, on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. My question is about the two times that the 
covenant of salt is mentioned once in Leviticus and then Second Chronicles. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I gather salt had a much more a deeper meaning to the ancient people than it does us. And I just like to hear you expound on that covenant of salt a little bit. Yeah. So the. Yep. Thanks, Steve, for calling. Good question. Uh, we've gotten that a few times from time to time. Um, there are different ways in which covenants are expressed in the Bible and made. Most of you have, uh, at least know when God cuts a covenant, and that was the most serious nature of a covenant that would ever be made, when a covenant was cut. And so, for instance, when God puts Abraham to sleep, what does he do? Well, he, he cuts a covenant with Abraham. Uh, he cuts the animals in half, and typically what would happen when uh, a covenant was cut is two people would walk through them. One would walk through them and then followed by another individual. And what did that symbolize? What did that picture? It pictured very simply that if I do not do as, um, you know, if I don't do what I promise, then it's going to be done to you accordingly. I'm willing to die. It's it, it's more than, you know, when we when we were kids, we used to shake hands. And when we shook hands, we were basically saying, hey, um, I agree, I promise. But if you really wanted to do something like super duper, I promise, you'd actually take a little pin and you would put a little poke in your finger and you would allow a little br- blood to be expressed and when you did that, uh, in essence, you were saying, uh, this is how serious I am. You even called yourself blood brothers. Well, the covenant of salt was a, a little bit different, a little bit less serious. But salt, remember, was a commodity. Uh, even in Scripture in the New Testament, when it says, for the wages of sin is death. You know what a wage is. A wage is something you get for what you do. But the particular Greek word that is used for wage in Romans 6.23 is a word for a salt block because very often people were paid with salt. Uh, It was a guarantee um, because you could use salt virtually anywhere. You could trade it for food. You could, and there was more of a barter system than a coin system at that point. So the covenant of salt was similar. It was a financial expression, uh, a commitment so to speak, that it cost you something, that it was serious to you, and you wanted to follow it accordingly. Anyway, um, we are so backed up on questions. I could spend 20 minutes on that. Let's go to the next one, Rick. And Okay. Well, uh, interestingly, I'm going to have to take this from my phone because for some reason my computer has seized up and I I don't see it in there. Uh, let's see. Okay, it's just reopened up now, so I don't know what's going on, but uh, hold on. Bear with me one second. By the way, you can always listen to these messages online at wagp.net. If you missed the Bible line today, you can go ahead and uh, go there and uh, just click on the Bible line, and you'll uh, be able to hear it. Here we go. Natalie from Jonesboro, Arkansas writes, why do most Christians worship on Sunday as the Sabbath and not Saturday, the seventh day? Are we remembering and keeping the Sabbath day holy and teaching our kids the Ten Commandments correctly if we attend church on Sunday, not Saturday, and observe no work on Sunday from midnight to midnight? There's a documentary on Amazon Video called Seven Days of Noah that basically suggests not keeping the Sabbath day holy, that Saturday, is a mark of the beast. 
Curious to know your thoughts on this. I'm really conflicted and seeking guidance from a few pastors I follow. I currently attend Central Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas, which is a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. I listen to Search the Scriptures app content, a lot of it, and my family used to attend your church when my dad was stationed at Paris Island. I'd be very interested to watch and listen to any message you might preach on the Ten Commandments. So uh, you obviously saw a documentary. I've not seen that particular one, but I can guarantee 99.999% of the chance it was done by the Seventh-day Adventists. And so they compare those who do not keep the Sabbath to receiving the mark of the beast. And, of course, it was started, look, when, when, a, when an organization or a church or denomination has faulty beginnings, you should highly question where it is at this particular time. And, of course, Seventh-day Adventists were started by Ellen G. White, and Ellen G. White was a heretic. Uh, she taught all kinds of false doctrine. And even in fairness to some Seventh-day Adventist people that may be listening, they have renounced some of her teachings, but they've embraced a lot of her teachings in false, as false, but, but they still embrace some of them as true. So let's talk about Sunday versus Sabbath worship. Obviously, in the Decalogue, and it's found in two principal places, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Um, Now, God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Scripture affirms. But the way he deals with people at different time frames in human history can change. None of you brought an animal sacrifice to church last week. Why? Because the once and for all sacrifice has been made. And so those prefigured what Jesus did. In the millennial temple, there will be animal sacrifices that will be done to teach people instructively of what Christ has already done. It will look back, kind of like baptism looks back at what Christ has done. So when you uh, think about a command of Scripture, you want to ask to whom it is given. Uh, When God said to Abraham, we just referenced um, Genesis 12, Go from your country and from your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so he leaves in faith, not really even knowing where he's going. Um, is that something when I read, oh, Lord, where do you want me to go? No, that, that's a command that's directed specifically uh, to Abraham. Well, when you think about, I've turned here to Exodus 31. When you think about the Sabbath, remember to whom it is given. Uh, We read here in Exodus 31, verses 12 and 13, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who sets you apart. Therefore, you are to observe these Sabbaths. So there's a multiplicity of Sabbaths, special Sabbaths, and then there's these Sabbaths, which happens every Saturday, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among the people. Now, most Sabbath observers today, they only partially observe the commandment. And so they do work on the Sabbath of one nature or another. And, um, well, if they're to follow it fully, they should be put to death. For six days, he then says in the next verse, work may be done. But on the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest. Holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall surely be put to death. And then he says here in Exodus um, 31, verse 17, 
it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel. And he says that, by the way, more than once in the Old Testament. Ezekiel repeats it. It's a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested from his labor. By the way, that's good commentary on the six days of creation. God uh, in six days created the heavens and the earth and not six ages or six days with large spaces between them, but six literal days. So the first mention of the Sabbath is in Genesis 2, where God blessed the Sabbath and God rested, not because he was tired, but because he was setting it apart. And then the next mention of the Sabbath is about, you know, 2,500 years later. And it's not by accident because God has a purpose for the Sabbath. So when you come into the New Testament... The question becomes, has God changed the day that we should worship on? And my short answer would be yes. Has God changed? No. The way God deals with people at different times in human history does change. Why did God change the day from worshiping on Saturday? And I know sometimes people say, Lord, we're so glad to be here on this Sabbath day. And that a lot came through some of the Reformed teachers who saw that God had no future for Israel, and so they adapted a lot of terms and even methods that were under the theocracy of Israel and adapted them to the church, and that even carries over today, not necessarily by people who are Reformed. But we're not here on the Sabbath day. We're here on the Lord's day. We're here on the first day of the week. But the Lord of the Sabbath, as he's identified, Yeshua, Jesus, changed the day of worship from the seventh day to the first day. And there are several reasons, I think. Number one, uh, he rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Uh, I turn to Mark 16, 9. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. And, and so it's the first day of the week that the resurrection happens. I think it's interesting, too, that every time Christ physically appears where it's recorded um, during that 40-day period, He does so on the first day of the week. He appeared to the disciples in the upper room on the first day of the week, John records. And then he'll record a few few verses later after eight days, which would bring it back to the next Sunday. He appears again on the first day of the week. And so just as the Sabbath celebrated the seven days of creation, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, celebrates the new creation. We're made new creatures in Christ Jesus. Um, third, and again, I've already stated earlier that there are some things that we do not by mandate, but by example, when did the church meet on the first day of the week? And so in Acts 20, on the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread. Now in this documentary, which I've not seen, no doubt they quote Constantine. They say, well, Constantine decreed that people should worship on the seventh day. All Constantine did was reaffirm what had been in place for a few hundred, several hundred years in 321, and he was just giving people an opportunity not to be hindered in worshiping on that day. They'll say, well, the Roman Catholic Church, look, the Roman Catholic Church wasn't in existence when Constantine makes this. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't begin till around, you know, 575 AD. That's when the first Pope comes into play. So this is not some papal directive. This is not a directive that came from the papacy through Constantine. 
This is a scriptural mandate and a scriptural example that we find. Um, in 1 Corinthians, it says in the 16th chapter, on the first day of every week, Paul said, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. So when did they collect the offering? On the first day of the week. When was the Great Commission given? On the first day of the week in that upper room, as the Father sent me, so I send you. When was the church born? On the day of Pentecost. What day was that? That was a Sunday, on the first day of the week. And so God doesn't change. And by the way, it's interesting. All Ten Commandments in the Old Testament are recited in the New Testament, but the day in which we worship um, is not directly recited. Uh, there's a different expression of it. Just like with the fifth commandment, there's a different expression. In the fuller account of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. What land? In the land of Israel. When it's cited in the New Testament, he says, I just flipped to Ephesians 6, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Same commandment, different application. So now it's not restricted to the land of Israel. It's restricted to the earth because God now has his covenant people scattered across the nations of the world. And so same commandment, different expression. So in the truest sense, you could say all Ten Commandments still apply, but obey the Sabbath is not specifically commanded because now we are to gather on the first day of the week. When did they do it? And by the way, were the work restrictions still in place? No, not at all. Now, do we need a day to refresh and rejuvenate? Yes. And we had a lot of blue laws. When I was a child in New England, you couldn't go to the grocery store. About the only thing they allowed open were gas stations. Nothing was open. And that began to gradually change as I grew older. And stores began to open and movie theaters. And and as with time, as we profaned the name of God and ignored him, it just became a common day like anything else. When I first came to pastor the church here at Community Bible Church 32-plus years ago, uh, there were no sports activities ever on Sunday. But then gradually, different sports teams and things, you know, for kids, they started doing gymnastic meets on Sundays and other things. And why? Because Sunday was no different from any other day of the week. And people just somewhat profaned it. And so we're still commanded to gather on the first day of the week. But when the early church did, they often met at night. Why? Because you had, you know, 60 million people who were in slavery under the Roman Empire. And so when could a slave often meet for worship? In the evening, on his own time. And that's when the church often met. Why do we meet traditionally Sunday morning at 11 o'clock? Because that was after the um, second milking of the cows, or the first milking of the cows. And so that that was done, and and so we met at 11 o'clock. Why, by the way, did they take a sheet and a cloth and put it over the communion elements to keep the flies off? Um, and so some things we, we do out of tradition, we're not always aware of why we are doing it. So the Seventh-day Adventist doctrine, seventh day of Sabbath worship is nonsense. And it's gross error. Ellen G. White was a heretic 
She denied many orthodox truths of the Christian faith. She retained a lot of things under the law that Jews did to distinguish them that under the new covenant have been dropped. We don't follow the kosher laws anymore. Why? Because God declared all meats clean. And God now distinguishes us not through the things we eat, but through a born-again relationship. All right. Very good. We've only got about three minutes left, so uh, hopefully you can go through this one. Linda from Milford, New Hampshire, would like your opinion of Ignatian spirituality. Well, uh, St. Ignatius, I, I, I stayed in a dorm called CLX at Boston College. I studied under the largest community of Jesuits in the world at Boston College. Not that every professor was a Jesuit, but they were some of the most learned people and Ignatius was one of the first Jesuits that was appointed by the Pope. And so the, the Pope appointed the Jesuits as the official teaching order. This Pope, by the way, Francis, is the first Pope we've ever had that was a Jesuit. And they tend to be very liberal in our day, and they were certainly liberal at Boston College. And I just mentioned in last Sunday's sermon as we're doing this prophecy series of um, uh, a new Jesuit that was appointed as the director of communications that's in favor of gayness and celebrating June as gay month and so forth and just some really wicked things. Um, but, you know, whether Ignatius was born again is debatable. But to follow Ignatian spirituality is not debatable because we're to follow the pattern that's taught in Scripture not something that is taught by tradition, not something that is taught by uh, an order of Jesuits in certain practices that we should... Every practice that we follow should be rooted and based in Scripture. So that's what you want to ask. You know, there's all kinds of things that are coming out of Catholicism today, centering prayer, Ignatian spirituality, and on and on we could go that are just not true and not founded in Scripture. And so if you begin to add things that aren't mandated in Scripture, you're you're on very, very dangerous ground. And so this is why it's important. You're obviously in a church that is not honoring the Word of God or a Bible study that's not honoring the Word of God because for them to raise this as an issue of spirituality is to go beyond the realm of Scripture. It's to not be faithful, not to add to Scripture or to subtract from Scripture. And so find your spirituality in the practices that put itself into shoe leather in the 66 books of the Bible and in their context so that we apply them accordingly. Good question. I appreciate it so much. We're out of time, but thanks for being with us today on The Bible Line. 